Shalom, and welcome to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. This is Adam. And I'm Rose. And today we have three phenomenal guest experts in their field to help us navigate an important conversation about transition planning for individuals with disabilities. There are so many factors that go into future planning for a loved one with a disability. We're hoping to give our listeners some education and a good place to start. We're thrilled to have Ellen Nalvin, Executive Director of Plan New Jersey, Beth Manis and Jessica Weinberg, co-founders and partners of Manis and Weinberg Special Needs Lawyers. Ellen, Beth, and Jessica, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the work you do, could you briefly introduce yourself and provide an overview of the work that you do? Ellen, would you be able to kick us off with that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I am the Executive Director of Planned Lifetime Assistance Network of New Jersey, otherwise known as Plan NJ. And we are a nonprofit organization that's been in existence for uh, 35 years. And our mission is to help families answer the question, who will care for my loved one when I'm gone? So that is a complex question and a, and a difficult question to answer. And it's very important that the question be answered in a very individualized way. So some people take advantage of our special needs trust administration services. Um, we have many people, we have almost 600 uh, clients with uh, uh, funded trusts that we administer. We also are legal guardian for over 40 people with disabilities. And uh, we have case management and advocacy services that we call home visit monitoring and advocacy. Um, and we also serve as representative payee for social security benefits. And then the key thing that we do is life planning, um, which I'm sure we'll be talking about at length in this podcast. That's awesome. We're so excited to have you, Ellen, and I'm excited to learn more about each of these things in our conversation today. Um, Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about your role at the firm? Sure. My team handles the special education advocacy side of the law firm practice. And what that means is we, we essentially advocate for all of the needs of a child with a disability um, in an educational setting, ranging from developing IEPs, developing 504 plans, trying to help families select the most appropriate and individualized programs and placement and services for their child in the school setting. We also represent the victims of bullying, which unfortunately are oftentimes students with disabilities. We also represent students who are accused of bullying. Um, our practice also involves working with divorced families in different contexts, one of which includes parent coordination, which comes into play post-divorce. Oftentimes parents have a lot of trouble navigating the programs for their disabled child. So a parent coordinator um, from our law firm can help parents work through those differences and even provide uh, supervision when there's a child with a disability involved of the parents when they have their visitation, visitation time. We also have someone on our staff who is an educational advocate, who's a prior director of special services, also a prior administrator and teacher. So she does expert um, testifying regarding which educational program is more appropriate for a student with a disability when parents have a disagreement regarding that aspect of the child's life. And the other piece involving divorced parents is that oftentimes we assist divorce attorneys who are filing motions regarding um, placement or program issues involving a child. That's wonderful. So many things that you wouldn't think about until you're in that position. So I'm really grateful that you're helping our listeners learn about these services before they need a hand. Um, Beth, do you want to fill us in on the other half of your firm? Because you guys sure cover a lot of ground. We do. Um, mine's the more of the kitchen sink of sort of and everything else related to families with disabled children. You know, we do estate planning, which often involves um, special needs planning so that we're protecting um, benefits eligibility for disabled students. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more later about the public benefits available so that, you know, 
and many of them are means tested. You can't have too much money. Um, and in that regard, I also work with uh, divorce lawyers and divorcing couples to make sure that child support is treated appropriately so that it doesn't inadvertently disqualify a child from public benefits. Um, we do a lot. We do some estate administration as well. I do a lot of guardianship work. Um, I for you know the elderly, but mostly for disabled young adults. You know, once somebody's eighteen, you know they're they're adults with you know all the you know rights and responsibilities as the rest of us. You know, including education decisions, and that's sometimes where you know my my side of the office and Jessica's side of the office begin to overlap because under the law, all education decisions transfer to the student at age 18. Um, you know, we can start with the premise that really what 18 year old is really prepared to be an adult. But when you have a student with disabilities, we have to be a little more careful about what, um, you know, the dangers that are, are waiting for them out in the world. So I do guardianship. I do a lot of contested guardianship work. Um, also with divorce lawyers will bring me in. It's often a delayed custody battle when we're fighting over guardianship of an adult disabled child. And, you know, sometimes the fight is with the other parent. Sometimes the fight is with the child who doesn't think that, you know, they need a guardian. You know, they don't want to be controlled, whereas the parents really just want to protect them. Beth, thank you for that. And we're going to get into guardianship soon. But I thought we would start a conversation for our listeners about special needs trust and estate planning. Um, and we know that transitions and life planning can be challenging for most individuals. But when we're talking about individuals with disabilities, they often have a variety of additional barriers that are placed in their lives as they navigate from one phase of life to the next. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, what might be some good first steps for families to take when trust and estate planning for their children with disabilities? And perhaps you and Ellen might be able to chime in on are there recommendations that you may have for parents uh, when to start for their children uh, in advocating in this space? And is there a difference between um, estate planning and special needs trust for a minor versus an adult? For estate planning, you know, when we have clients who come in with children with disabilities, you know, it's not always clear when a child is, you know, in kindergarten or middle school or sometimes even in high school what the, that child's abilities will be and if they'll even need public benefits. But you know, it, it's much easier to overplan than try to scramble at the end. So we always recommend a special needs trust as part of just a regular estate plan. So we'll create the trust that will receive that child's inheritance, you know, rather than going directly to the child, because for many of these benefits, we don't want this person to have more than $2,000. It goes into the, um, it's called the third party special needs trust. And it's third party because it's somebody else's money. Um, there is another animal called a self-settled trust, which is, as it sounds, it's with that person's own money. So for example, if I were to leave you know, my disabled child a million dollars and that child inherited a million dollars in that child's name, the whole house of cards of benefits planning that we might have done ahead of time comes down. Um, so if you we then would ask the court to allow us to put it into what's called a self-settled trust. And we do this for, as I said, anything that, that that is that child's money, whether it's an inheritance that comes directly to them, if it's a personal injury settlement that comes directly to them, if it's child support. And again, like child support is deemed income to the child, even though it's paid probably to the custodial parent, it's deemed income to the child. So all of this has to go into what's called a self-settled trust. And the biggest difference between these trusts is that because it's self-settled, because it's that child's money, there's a payback provision. So if there's any money left in that trust when that child passes away, you know, Medicaid's first in line to get paid back for everything they've provided for that child. Um, whereas with a, the third party trust, if there's anything left when the child passes away, it can go to the child's siblings, whoever else the parents um, designate. Um, Ellen, maybe this is a good time to like tag out to you to talk about pooled trusts. Sure, sure. And just before we go to the pooled trust concept, um, Really what Beth was talking about is the major reason that planning young is so important. Because if planning is done properly um, with an expert attorney who's gonna do design a trust that's a third party trust, then we don't have to worry about, there wouldn't be a payback provision. So one of the things I find with families is they sometimes are hesitant to create a special needs trust because they have a misunderstanding. They think it all would go back to Medicaid at the end of their child's life. And that is not the case. 
if they go to an expert attorney like Beth and have this trust set up in, in advance. And then the other part of that that you were saying, Beth, I'd like to um, uh, piggyback on is the, is the early planning um, that and um, in terms of we don't know whether or not a person is going to need the public benefits, the means-tested benefits like Medicaid or SSI, but we find that um, uh, attorneys can write a trust that can be initially used in order to protect public benefits, but if later on the person doesn't need those benefits, the trust can be used in a more liberal manner um, without worrying about the restrictions of being on on public benefits. But that's really the idea. The reason that we do this is that if a person um, requires um, the services of, for example, the New Jersey Division of Developmental Disabilities, then they really need to, they must be qualified, they must be eligible for Medicaid. So we, we want to plan to make sure that uh, and that's really the idea behind a special needs trust is if it's written by an expert attorney like Beth, we know that they can have the Medicaid services and also the services of Division of Developmental Disabilities. And even in Beth's example, a million dollars may sound like a lot of money, but if you're private paying for all of the services of a person that has significant support needs, a million dollars can go very quickly. So uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention, um, Beth, thanks for referring to the pool trust, is that um, not-for-profit organizations like Plain New Jersey can hold what's called a pooled special needs trust, which in our case is called the Plain New Jersey Community Trust. And sometimes families, and, and what that is, is it's a, a large trust with multiple sub-accounts. And that's a way for families to sign up plan ahead, even if they don't know whether or not they're going to need it, it costs nothing to sign up for a sub-account with the pooled trust. And then it functions if, if when the parents pass away and they have some funds over $2,000, the money can go into a sub-account of the pooled trust and their, their public benefits are, are protected. The other thing I just wanted to say about this early planning is it's so important to have what we call a life plan. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more later, but we, you know, one of the things that I've, I've heard Beth say is, we need a special needs trust, we, may, we need a will, but we also need a life plan. Um, and that's a, so, so maybe later on we can talk at more length about what that is and why that's so important. Most certainly, I think we're gonna get to that too. Beth, did you have something else you wanted to add? Yeah, I just want to add something about the trust that one of the conversations that we have often a few times with clients is about who should be the trustee. Because, you know, especially with a special needs trust, it is so critical to, you know, not just try to be fair to your kids by naming them jointly as trustees of a special needs trust. It's a minefield. And there are so many things that can go wrong in terms of things that shouldn't be paid for out of the trust being paid for out of the trust. Um, you know, not being paid appropriately. For example, you know, any it, with the self-settled trust, you know, anything made any expenditure more than five thousand dollars, you need pre-approval for. Um, and any of these obstacles, you know, if we trip over them, again, can take the whole house of cards down. So it, it's critical to name an appropriate trustee, and by appropriate, I mean somebody who knows the law. Um, we often consult we advise clients to name Plan New Jersey as trustee. Um, they, and when clients want, you know, they want an institutional trustee. So we always give them Plan New Jersey. Sometimes they come with their own banks and you have to be really careful. Like banks, just because they have a trust department doesn't mean they know how to handle a special needs trust. And we had a client that chose a private institution and sure enough, within a few months, got a letter from Medicaid that services were going to be terminated because the you know, fancy bank trustee was just sending the parent, you know, $1,500 a month to pay expenses, but the law doesn't allow for that. So we have to have a hard conversation with clients about who should be the trustee. So not, even, not just it's a minefield, but also having siblings control the money of their disabled sibling 
it sometimes causes acrimony among the siblings. Like it's better for them to just be siblings. So sometimes we'll build in what's called a trust protector. You know, the siblings can sit as a committee and make sure that the trustee is doing what the trustee is supposed to do, but they don't have to field the calls that are coming frequently for, you know, whatever they come for, but just they're not holding their siblings purse strings. And I think it's important to make for them to be able to maintain their own family relationship. Absolutely. Um, All of this is great information. I imagine some of our listeners who find this topic really important are also feeling a little bit overwhelmed because this is a massive undertaking. What advice do you have for family members that are feeling overwhelmed in this process or don't even know where to start? Yeah, I think we just, we start at the beginning, you know, our first conversation will be, you know, like, tell me about your family. What are your goals for your family? You know, tell me about your kids, you know, and parents sometimes will either overestimate or underestimate what their kids can do. So we try to get, you know, drill down to get a real conversation about what it is they're worried about. And, you know, with respect, whether it's estate planning or guardianship, you know, what's your goal? Because when they come in and say, oh, I need guardianship, maybe not. Um, or I need a special needs trust, maybe not. So, you know, everybody comes in with an idea of what they need, but we like to talk more about like the family unit and what their what their fears and their goals are. Yeah, if I could add to that, um, this is where a comprehensive life plan comes in. And sometimes it's referred to as a letter of intent or a letter of instructions. Um, but the life plan that, that we recommend is, is a very, very detailed, comprehensive document that really describes all about the person. We sort of think of it as three different um, aspects. The, most, the, the first of all is a description of the individual. Who are they? What are they like? What are they good at? What are the real specific things? If they love movies, what kind, what genre, what type? Really specifically... Um, what makes them happy? What makes them unhappy? How do we, so all about the person's preferences, what they, um, things about technology they might use, what community, um, you know, resources are they, you know, uh, do they, do they love to go to um, the local pizza shop and maybe the pizzeria people know them? We want to really describe the person. Then we also want to describe the resources that they either have or we think they will need in the future. Whether it's you know housing supports, if so, how much? How much time can they be alone? Can they? How much support do they need? Can they? basically handle their own activities of daily living, but they really need help identifying when they're sick or going to the doctor or managing money. And then the third part are the people that are going to implement the plan. So as Beth was saying, you got to think about who's the right trustee to manage that that um, that account. And are they somebody that is going to be really knowledgeable or comfortable learning the rules of Medicaid? Um, And then also the guardianship, who's the right, if you're going to have a guardian, who would be the right person? So the life plan is a really comprehensive document. And the earlier you start writing that as part of your future planning, and then you just add to it as you go along, update it um, and, and keep it fresh and have all sorts of details about school, about medical care, about daily life. What does the life look like? And what do the families do? So do for the individual on a day-to-day basis. Um, that's a, a really important part of this planning process is just describe the person. Ellen, thank you. That's such valuable information for us to think about. Oftentimes I feel families and those of us that are a part of an individual disabilities life, we sometimes forget these little bits and pieces that are really essential to making it all kind of come together. You've just hit upon a few different topics there, and um, it feels like estate planning and trust and guardianship certainly go hand in hand. So I'd love to move our conversation uh, into guardianship. But as we move our conversation there, I did want to provide our listeners with some context um, regarding what guardianship is and how a family determines when and if guardianship is the right decision for them and their loved one. So um, Beth, as you had mentioned, that age of 18 At 18, all individuals, including those with developmental disabilities, reach the legal age of majority. This means that parents can no longer make decisions legally on behalf of an adult child, regardless of the nature of an individual's disability, and regardless of whether or not the individual still lives with the family. 
Some families decide to explore guardianship as an option for their family member. A guardian is defined as a person or agency appointed by a court to act on behalf of an individual. Guardianship can be general or limited to certain types of decisions, such as those related to residential, educational, medical, legal, vocational, or financial issues. In all cases, guardianship should be viewed as a, viewed as a solution of last resort because it does remove an individual's fundamental right for self-determination. And so with that being said, Ellen and Beth, I, I wanted to know from your both unique perspectives, um, how do you share this information with families? How do you assist them in determining if guardianship is an appropriate move for their family and loved one? I mean, we often have conversations with clients who come in, you know, either insisting they need guardianship or afraid if they get guardianship, like what that will do to their child. So again, we start with the, okay, what are you worried about? And really what, what can your child, you know, where does your child thrive? You know, and because guardianship, it's a legal finding of, first, there has to be a legal finding of incapacity that somebody doesn't have the capacity to manage themselves or their affairs. And, you know, Adam, as you mentioned, like there's a spectrum, you know, we've got limited guardianship, we've got plenary guardianship. So, you know, we start with questions like, you know, can your child, you know, manage their own medication? If your child is in a doctor's office and the doctor's explaining, you know, what a procedure is going to be, will they understand it enough to be able to give informed consent? If the smoke detector goes off, will the child know what to do? Um, you know, with a lot of kids, you know, young adults, you know, how are they with, you know, in social situations in, you know, do they, can they read social cues? Are they, are we worried about them being subject to, you know, nefarious people trying to like financially exploit them? Because that happens a lot. You know, you get somebody, we saw a situation where somebody came in to found, met the kid at Starbucks. They would be there at the same time every week. They developed a friendship. Let's go into business together. The kid co-signed an auto loan. And, you know, you can imagine how it went from there. So, you know, while maybe somebody has capacity to understand these things, but doesn't have the capacity, some things, but not the capacity to understand others. Um, you know, another thing we talk about is conservatorship, you know, and, and conservatorship, you know, we're not the Britney Spears type of conservatorship, because <laughs> that was in a different state. It's a different thing. Um, conservatorship is when you have capacity, but you give somebody else the authority to make your financial decisions and manage your money. It's, it's like a court sanctioned power of attorney almost. So, you know, we have several where, you know, somebody like they have enough capacity to know that they're going to get in trouble. So, you know, they're making all of their own other decisions, but not their financial decisions. And with respect to limited, I mean, we've limited, I've had one that was so limited, it was just a guardianship to handle like one specific matter, because the psychiatrist, you know, opined and testified that this one issue was very triggering to the person. So, you know, we sliced it very, very thin. Um, you know, sometimes people, we, typically the, the most often carved out ones are the right to vote, the right to marry, um, the right to drive. Um, I also add in the right to choose. If, if somebody is able to like vote, marry, and drive, they should probably also be able to decide where they're going to work, where they're going to live. Um, and again, it's going to be very person-specific, as everything should be, because as, as you said, we're taking somebody's rights away. So we... We try to approach it as we're just looking to protect, not control. And guardianship's not forever. You know, the guardians have to report to the court every year. And we've had many cases where, you know, later on, because some people, they just need a little bit more time to get there. We terminate the guardianship. We go back to the court. We have more doctor certifications. We say everything worked as it was supposed to. You know, we want to be done now. We, you can terminate the guardianship and everybody can go on their way. Yeah, I think that, key, um, you know, Beth has really hit on the, the key, which is individualized approach. And there's a great deal of conversation uh, in, in New Jersey now and really nationally about um, supported decision making. And that has, I think, the Britney Spears um, uh, controversy has really raised people's awareness about the uh, the the problems with taking away people's rights and people losing control. So guardianship, the, the decision about whether or not to pursue guardianship, first of all, is very individualized, but it's also related to um, 
uh, whether how much support a person really needs in order to uh, be be able to make decisions for themselves. So if a guardianship is appointed for whether it's limited and, and sliced to a very small um, area of a person's life or whether it's broad and, and, and all of a person's life, it's first of all, the law in New Jersey is very clear that the guardian must promote the individual's self-determination. So that's a really important piece for, for guardians to know. It's not for the guardian's job. It's not the guardian's job to make decisions that they think is best. The guardian's job is to make decisions that they think the individual wants. And their job is to really promote helping them to understand informed decision making using multiple forms of communication so that the person is making decisions and the guardian is helping to uh, implement that wherever possible. I did want to mention briefly about supported decision making. There is a the in New Jersey we have a project to really try to implement supported decision making, and there's techniques that really any good parent, family, or pri or su support provider uses that. Um, to help a person participate in their own decision-making and make decisions for themselves. Honestly, we all do that. You know, if I have a medical need, I'm going to consult with my husband, my family, you know, my friend who's a doctor. I'm going to consult with other people that know me and know and help me make that decision, even though I have full capacity. So the, the trick, though, that we're trying to get accomplished in New Jersey and nationally, um, hopefully this will happen nationally, is an authorization under the law that allows a person to sign similar to a power of attorney a supported decision-making agreement that doctors can then honor and understand that you know that yes this person has the capacity with the help of somebody else to um you know to make this decision um and uh and has the authority to do so with an agreement that's more understandable than a power of attorney. Right now, doctors don't quite have the assurance that they won't be sued, for example, if, and so they tend to push um, having a guardianship. So hopefully we're moving in the direction of allowing people to have full control over their decisions. But I think until there's a point where we do have some authority and some regulation of supported decision-making agreements, it's imperative that I mean, any 18-year-old um, should be signing a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. I mean, every adult, anybody over 18. Um, because, it, and especially because I know that doctors and banks also are pushing back on, because they don't know what it is. And it's not, if the person is presenting as possibly not having the capacity to understand the transaction they're involved in or the dis medical decision they're about to make, to be able to have you know, a legally enforceable agreement is important. Thank you both for that information. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate that insight. Um, Ellen, a unique offering through Plan NJ is the home visit monitoring and representative payee for social security services. Can you explain a little bit about what those are and how they work and who is eligible for the eligible for those services? Sure. So um, just very briefly about representative payee services, that really is so that, that we or any uh, uh, someone who is appointed by the Social Security Administration to serve as representative payee, that person is responsible to manage the person's Social Security cash benefits and make sure that essential things happen like rent gets paid, bills get paid, food is, you know, they, the person has money for food and for their own personal needs. So it sort of relates to our prior conversation about this is a continuum that is, we're trying to avoid legally taking away people's rights. And so representative payee, like power of attorney, and hopefully in the future, a supported um, decision-making agreement, these are alternatives to guardianship. So even trusteeship is an alternative to guardianship because it's managing a person's money and allowing them to make decisions about other things or um, participate in that decision, but making sure that they're not taken advantage of financially. Um, so um, 
so representative payee is one of these sort of alternatives to guardianship in that helps manage a person's money. Um, the home visit monitoring services is part of our case management and advocacy work that we do. And in that respect, um, let's say there is a, a guardian. It is just what it sounds like. We're visiting people in their homes. We might be taking them out for a cup of coffee or walk in the park so that we are, if they are in a staff supported home, like a group home or supervised apartment, it's good to get them kind of on their own, um, away from staff and, 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 and so that they can talk freely or we can observe them if they don't have a lot of verbal communication. Um, and we can, we're checking routinely, usually once a month, sometimes more often, we're just visiting with the person and seeing how they're doing. And therefore, if we notice well, gee, Rose, I know you wear glasses. Where are your glasses? Or, oh, really, you were complaining about a headache. Have you gone to the doctor to check that out? So we're doing that follow-up. Um, as, as we know, um, it's challenging. Staff tend to change. Our, our, the individuals um, that we support uh, do maybe had one, one staff for a while and then they somebody else was replaced. Well, our staff are kind of consistently aware of the life plan, the, the planning document like the ISP um, or the IEP, and we're, we're aware of what it is and making sure that the staff who might change are aware of the specific individual needs of the person. And just bottom line, we're eyes on um, on behalf of um, a distant relative or, you know, somebody who might be living in another state who can't visit, but they might, you know, hear concern in somebody's voice and want us to go check it out. We even will go to the hospital with people, we'll pay, take people to the doctor, we'll take them shopping if they, if they need that help um, to supplement what kind of uh, su services they have in the community and make sure everything is going well. They're safe, they're secure. Um, and they're happy. Ellen, what a beautiful service to be offering. Um, I know oftentimes when working with families in our community, especially if their loved one is an older adult with a disability, uh, this tends to be a lot of the focus of questioning is what do I do when I'm gone? How do I prepare for these next steps? And it sounds like Plan NJ uh, is taking that on the helm right there. Um, I, I'd love to ask a question now to Jessica. Um, as many aspects of transition planning for a person with a disability can be scary, as many times we know families are navigating these moments for the very first time. Uh, Jessica, as an attorney who specializes in special education law, how do you assist families in advocating for their child through school-age transitions, be it from school to school, program to program, or even in the 18 to 21-year-old space? It's a very individualized analysis. So the first transition is obviously if a student is eligible for special education services in preschool. And that's, that's a critical stage in a young child's life. And it's a big change in that child's life. So a student may, be, uh, may have separation anxiety from one of their parents. So I would first hone in on what, what are the extent of the child's disabilities and what are the extent of the child's needs? What is it that the um, parent or parents um, seeks to have for their child in school to feel comfortable sending their very young child into a school environment beginning at age three under the special education laws? That's when eligibility commences. So for a preschool student, let's just say for argument's sake that they have separation anxiety, I would propose a transition plan to have that child start in a preschool setting. It may be starting two mornings a week and then each week building up. It just depends on the needs of that particular child. So that's one example. Another big transition is from elementary school to middle school. So it's really important to hone in on, is the program that's been appropriate for this child in elementary school, which probably is a smaller class size, a, still appropriate for a middle school program. And that's really key to determine in helping my client develop the plan for middle school. Perhaps in a class size of, you know, 15, 
a student was able to be successful. But now in the middle school, it's jumped to 23-25. So a student with significant ADD and an inability to focus may now need a paraprofessional in a middle school setting. We have many students who have sensory needs. Um, loud noises are incredibly distracting for them and overwhelming. So I might suggest in that instance that we do a walkthrough during a typical day without the rest of the student population to determine, do, are, is there anything that needs to be adjusted? Do the lights need to be dimmed in this hallway? Do we need different acoustics? Um, there's, you know, there's a battery of factors that, that I kind of consider and have my clients thinking about as that transition's occurring. And through each transition, we're advocating for the needs of that particular, the individual needs of that particular child and developing a transition plan. I oftentimes want at the meeting for, and it's, and it's legally required, this doesn't always happen, that the new school staff members that are relevant to the child's education are at this meeting because they can answer the direct questions that we're gonna have about their programming, services, acoustics, et cetera. The same applies for a middle school to high school transition, which can be have its own set of challenges that, that oftentimes is when parents become very anxious because they're thinking about the next phase of their child's life, which is transition and their post-secondary goals and objectives. And is this high school program going to be able to adequately prepare my child for college or a vocation. So there is a, a lot of thought in that process because sometimes parents also want a high school program that has strong trend, I'll get to that later, that has strong transition planning built into the high school program. That's when we may need to be exploring out of district placements that are more appropriate for a high school age student. That doesn't mean that we're not exploring out of district placements all along the way, but that is something that frequently comes up when we're talking about an older student's needs. So speaking of transition planning, really the key there is focusing on the strengths, interests, and preferences of the child. And that begins at age 14. And there is a very, the regulations that govern special education have very explicit criteria that's supposed to be addressed in the transition planning section of a student's IEP. I seldomly, seldomly see an IEP that has appropriate transition planning. They're incredibly vague. A child's strengths, interests, and preferences are very rarely identified, and that's the first step in planning for transition planning. Because if you don't have that identified, you have no idea what activities are supporting those goals, nor do you know what goals and objectives even need to be achieved without identifying the strengths, interests, and preferences. They are absolutely an essential part of transition planning. The other component of transition related to a student with disabilities is when a student is school avoidant. And unfortunately, we are seeing a tremendous amount of school avoidance right now. Um, it, it's quite unfortunate. It has increased immensely since the pandemic. So trying to transition a child back to school requires a lot of planning and requires the right team members to be part of the planning. And asking for the school psychologist, a school behaviorist, private providers of the family to be at the meeting so that everyone can collaborate on how do we attempt to have this student return to school. And again, it may be a very slow plan. Oftentimes it works. If it doesn't work, then we have to explore we have to explore options that maybe can address a student's mental health needs.
Jessica, I really appreciate you kind of walking us through and our listeners through early intervention to, you know, the end of a high school career space. Um, It's a lot for people to take in. I know as myself as a former educator, special ed teacher, case manager, I used to navigate and coordinate a supported employment, work-based learning program. I felt like I was sitting back in a child study team office just now. Um, And these are all the really important pieces. and, And you're correct. Transition planning often doesn't have a lot of thought in the public school system. Um, it's not their area of expertise, and oftentimes it it is the forgotten piece um, that's really needed in order for you know the youth of our space to really have the appropriate education that they should be afforded. Um, so I'd love to kind of segue a little bit to that ending of school age transition in that uh, work based learning space, as it's uh, something really near and dear to my heart as a former. Um, work-based learning coordinator. And Ellen, I know as a specialist in life planning for individuals with disabilities and as the first president of the Association of Persons Supporting Employment First, um, I'd love to know if you have any resources or suggestions for families that are navigating the transition from school to employment. Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this because of the priority to uh, really encourage people and families to work. Um, Kids with disabilities, uh, even people with very, very significant disabilities and significant support needs can work. And um, I sometimes worry when we talk so much about protecting public benefits that it really scares families into thinking, well, they can't work because we have to protect their, their Medicaid benefits. So I do want to talk about the Workability Medicaid program um, because that's kind of the answer to that question. We can make sure that someone is is Medicaid eligible, uh, eligible for those essential support services with DDD um, and also eligible for this work based uh, workability Medicaid program. So you can, though that is accessed in through either the County Board of Social Services or the Division of Disability Services. This is dds.org, uh, .gov, I guess it is, um, the Division of Disability Services that coordinates the workability program. Um, so basically, in this case, a person with a disability can work, earn a whole lot more money, and save a whole lot more than the $2,000 limit um, and still still work. And work is so important for so many reasons. Feeling being a part of the community, being productive, uh, contributing to society, really learning, integrating all people with differences in, you know, disability um, inclusion is, is such, it's, it's critical for non-disabled people as well as people with disabilities because we all have differences and we just, so the more a person is involved in a workplace, it benefits all of society. So most supported employment that you mentioned, Adam, is, um, is funded through the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation Services, DVRS. And there is a county office, a, a, an office that man, manages these services and pays for them in every county. So Division of Vocational Rehabilitation Services, you can, New Jersey can be found on the web and you wanna go to your county office and you can ask, so I'm interested in supported employment services. What are my choices in terms of, of agencies that are funded through DVRS? And uh, so the ARC Project Hire is a statewide organization. And then there are quite, there are many, many supported employment agencies. And then you can contact them and talk to them about your, in, your loved one's support needs and whether or not this organization is a good fit or maybe a different organization is a better fit. But having supported employment, it's called job coaching or a, um, um, an employment specialist, to help a person, whether they're on the job or off the job, they have specialties, special training in this area, and it really can make the difference between, you know, successful employment or not. But as as Jessica was saying, that transition plan should start at age 14, and at age 16, while, as you were talking about, Adam, work-based learning is essential for 
kids with disabilities in school. And schools can, can and should pay for job coaches. They either have them as part of the school or they should hire them, hire one of the supported employment agencies. Um, schools, kids are entitled to this, um, this service and, and schools will, you know, you might have to fight them. You might need Jessica <laughs> to push them a little bit. Um, but, but people are entitled to this service because they may need some really, you know, significant support while they're in school. It's, that's the preparation that helps them be successful and get employment when they graduate. I'm so glad you brought that up, Ellen. I'd love to piggyback off of that to make two points. Um, one, parents are entitled to ask their local school district to invite a representative from DVRS to attend their transition meeting, which can be incredibly helpful because there are, as Ellen just pointed out, a lot of services available through DVRS that are really um, incredible. And then you mentioned the job coach, which I'm so thrilled you mentioned. That's something we push for all the time. But in addition to that, school districts really should be collecting data on how a student is performing the tasks of a job. If they don't collect data, it is literally impossible to measure that student's progress on the job accurately. So I just want to make those two additional points. That's wonderful. I'm very grateful to have had all of you on for this conversation. Um, as we start gearing towards wrapping things up, um, I'm curious from Jessica and Beth, what you find to be the greatest challenge in protecting your clients from disability discrimination. And also, if our listeners want to reach out to your firm for guidance, what's the best way for them to find you? Okay, sorry. So challenge in protecting from disability discrimination, I think it depends on like the the age where it's happening, you know, and it's starting as early as when they're little. You know, I mean, Ellen talked about how we should be that the disabled community should be working right alongside us in the non-disabled community. And I know Jessica and I have, and all of the people on our staff have fought the same battle numerous times about inclusion in the schools. And the things we repeatedly say at IEP meetings is that these kids are not going to graduate, you know, into a disabled world with an aid, you know, that they're going to take with them everywhere. So, you know, it's that's discriminatory, you know, to like be treating them as so different that we're not including them in the classroom. You know, I, I think that's where we, we fight it that way. We fight it with respect to, um, you know, harassment, intimidation, and bullying. And on both sides, like as, you know, students who are victims and then students who are, you know, alleged perpetrators. But sometimes these are kids who are disabled. And, you know, maybe are not aware of what it is they're doing that is being perceived as harassment, intimidation, and bullying, certainly in, you know, the disciplinary world. And I don't know if, Jessica, you want to comment on that. So if, if a student with a, with a disability has been disciplined and their program is going to be modified for 10 days or more, they are entitled to a manifestation determination meeting which means was their um, alleged infraction a manifestation of their disability. So at least in the special education regulations, they've carved out this exception to protect students from being disciplined when it is a function of their disability. The same doesn't hold true, unfortunately, for harassment, intimidation, and bullying allegations. Um, you know, the age of the student, their disability is supposed to be factors that are considered in making a determination, but there's not this concrete um, requirement to have what's called a manifestation determination meeting in the HIB arena, which is, which is quite unfortunate. But at least we have the enactment of HIB to protect students who are disabled from being bullied because there's a dis disproportionate number of students with disabilities who are, who are bullied more than their non-disabled peers. And Mallory's law 
um, has made, thankfully, some very, very good changes to the HIB laws that hopefully will be, will result in less bullying incidents because parents now can be, or they've increased the civil liability um, that can be imputed on a parent if a student is not um, adhering to the training obligations that maybe follow um, the finding of a HIB. So parents are now more culpable. It can remain in a student's permanent record. It's now mandated after three incidents of HIB that, it, that there is a record of the investigation in the student's file. So those are some pretty hefty changes in the law, which we're hoping serve as a, as a deterrent. Students are also now, school districts also have been authorized with mandating counseling, behavioral services as a part of HIP. We have thankfully mechanisms in place to enforce these anti-discrimination laws to protect students um, who are disabled. Well, it seems like you guys really know all the challenges that are out there to the best of the abil your ability. Um, so if our listeners want to contact you or they think that there's something that you could help with, where can they find you? They can call 973-376-7733. Uh, um, we're, you know, our, what's the word? Our website is www.maniswineberg.com. Thank you. And we'll get that in our show notes. Ellen, do you have any bits of last advice for people who are preparing for their life transition and how they can contact you if they want to contact Plan NJ to get started? Sure. Thank you. Um, our website has a great deal of information on it. It's plannj.org. Um, so that's an easy way to get in touch with us. If people want to call, it's 908-575-8300. Um, on our website, we've got some materials, some life planning materials. Um, there are some, some questions that will help guide people through the process, but also there's an, um, materials that are downloadable through an, an, um, some tools called lifecoursetools.com. Um, uh, and so we've got them, you can download some of those and they're very nice visual tools that get people started on the life planning process. So you can download, download those from our website and um, you know, we are happy to entertain um, questions from families about helping them to kind of work through this process and uh, make decisions about the right people to support their loved ones for the future. Wonderful. Thank you, Ellen. I wanted to thank you, Ellen, Beth, and Jessica for taking the time to share your expertise with everyone. And for all of our listeners to listening to the Jewish Disability Services, Together We Make an Impact podcast. This episode was made possible by our sponsor, the Jewish Community Foundation. We thank you for your commitment to making an impact in the disability community. We hope you'll continue to follow our conversations. And until next time, thank you all.